Hello, everyone, and welcome to Family Church Online. So glad to be joining with you today on Pentecost Sunday. We're going to talk a little bit more about what that means in just a moment from Acts chapter 2. First, let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the opportunity to bring our hearts to your word. We hear the word of James, Lord, in the New Testament, where he said, Receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. We ask that you would do a transformational work in our souls today as we receive your word with meekness and with humility, hearing the counsel of the Lord for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, today is Pentecost Sunday, and Acts chapter 2 teaches us what happened on the first Pentecost Sunday in the life of the church. Here's what it says in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In Acts 2, verses 1 through 4, we read about the details of what happened, the external, visible signs of what happened at the first Pentecost. However, I want to talk to you about the internal world of what happened at the first Pentecost, things that maybe were not as observable on the outside. The inside story is this. At Pentecost, God begins to govern the human heart by His Spirit. Now, that may sound like a negative thing in your mind. God governs our hearts by His Spirit, but actually it's part of the fullness of God's promises that He would take our hearts from a condition of rebellion and antagonism against Him into a place of surrender, into a place of love, into a place of embracing the commandments of God because the words that He speaks to us, those words are spirit and they are life. And we want God to govern our hearts from the inside out. Now, when I say that that's the internal story of Pentecost, you may be wondering, well, where in the world does he get that? I don't read that in the details of Pentecost verses 1 through 4 of Acts chapter 2. Well, in order to understand that idea of God bringing his government into our lives, we've got to go back a little further than Acts chapter 2. Now, I said a moment ago that in Acts 2, we read about the first Pentecost in the life of the church. But this is not the first Pentecost that ever happened. Pentecost is not a Christian term in terms of its introduction, though we use it to describe a Christian reality. Pentecost is actually a Jewish term that describes one of the feasts that God established for the children of Israel. And to really see the significance of Acts 2, you have to go back all the way to Leviticus chapter 23. Now, we're not going to turn there right now. I'm going to summarize it. You can check it out later if you want to. But in Leviticus chapter 23, we read about the seven feasts that God establishes in the life of Israel. Now, you could say there's eight feasts if you include the weekly feast of Sabbath or Shabbat, but we'll just talk about the seven, the major seven feasts that really gave rhythm to the children of Israel's life on an annual basis. Those seven feasts are um, starts with Passover, then it goes into unleavened bread and first fruits. Those three are the 
first sort of grouping. The next one is Pentecost. It sort of stands alone by itself a little. Then the last three are the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, we're not going to go into extensive you know, probing of each of those feasts, but let me just say a few things about them overall. What were the purpose of the Feast of Israel? Well, on one level, they were an agricultural reality. The children of Israel was an agricultural community, and each of the feasts were tied to an ad- agricultural rhythm within the land of Israel. But there wasn't just an agricultural aspect, there was also an economic aspect. Each feast had certain offerings associated with it, certain sacrifices, and those were brought ultimately to the temple in Jerusalem. So there was an economic reality where the work of the temple in Jerusalem was funded by what the people brought in each of the feasts. But it wasn't just agricultural, economical. There was also a pastoral element from God to His people. Because in each feast, there was a rest from work. There was reflection. There was celebration. There was a festival of nature. And so God, by establishing these feasts, were, He was caring for His people by giving them a solemn rest from their customary work. But the next two are the ones I really want to focus on as it brings us into the inside story of Acts chapter 2. The next one is that there was a historical reality to each of the feasts. Yes, they marked agricultural rhythms. Yes, there was an economic impact. Yes, God was giving them rest. But each of the feasts were associated with some event in the history of Israel, something God did. And through that feast, they were commemorating that. They were reminding themselves of the God story in their past. For example, Passover, as most of us know, marked the occasion where God commanded the children of Israel to take the blood of the lamb and to put it over their doors so the death angel would pass over or it would pass by their house. And through that, God brings them out of Egyptian captivity and slavery into ultimately the land of promise. So that's just one example how the feast of Passover Yes, it was a rest element from God, but it was also a remembrance element from God, a memorial to a historic occasion. Now, I'll apply that to past, uh, Pentecost in just a moment, but let me look at the next aspect of the feast. There, were a, there was a historic component, and then lastly, there was a prophetic component. Each of the feasts not only looked backward to something God did, they also looked forward to something God was going to do. And that something is found in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. We can use Passover as the most readily accessible example there. In the past, it was a Passover lamb that was sacrificed so the death angel would pass over. But prophetically, it was anticipating Jesus Christ, whom John called the Lamb of God, the one whose blood paid the price for our sin debt so that we could have the gift of eternal life. So in Passover, we see that historical element. We also see the prophetic element. So when you think about that, and you apply those principles to Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, you have to ask the question, what is it saying about the future? What is it anticipating about what God's going to do in the life of the church? Well, before you can look at its prophetic application, you have to start by looking at its historical remembrance. What happened at the first 
Pentecost. In Jewish life, Pentecost is not just called Pentecost, it's called Shavuot. And what that holiday commemorates is the giving of Torah on Mount Sinai. Through Passover, unleavened bread, <clears throat> and the, the first fruits feast, God brought them out of Egypt and then brought them to Mount Sinai. But on the first Pentecost, God gives them the law as Moses is on the mountain with God. Moses ascended to be with God in a place of manifested glory. And when he descends, he comes down with the law. The law was God's way of governing his people. In other words, the law in Israel was not the set of rules that the children of Israel had to follow in order to try to find their own righteousness. No, the law was something God gave them as a gift to form them into the people of God. God brought them out of Egypt because they already belonged to Him, but the law was given to form them into His character, to form them into His likeness. So when you think about the historical memory of Pentecost, now you can see its prophetic application. That in the Pentecost of the church, what happens? Jesus, like Moses, ascends into a place of glory. And when he descends, it's not just the ultimate day of Jesus returning, but he sends his spirit, just like God sent the law from the top of Sinai down to the people. It is now God sending his spirit from heaven to the earth so that he can form us into his people. He can form us into those that carry his character. He can form us into a people who carry his likeness. So Pentecost is not just a Christian term that describes a certain denominational expression of the church. Pentecost is a biblical term that goes all the way back to Leviticus, all the way back to Exodus, and it commemorates when God gave the children of Israel the law. And I think this explains why the first manifestation of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 is that they spoke with other tongues. When they spoke with other tongues, yes, they were proclaiming the gospel to different languages because the Spirit makes the gospel accessible to everyone. So yes, there's that reality, but I also think there's another other reality going on. When they spoke with other tongues, I think it's a sign that God had conquered their hearts. That wayward heart of rebellion, that wayward heart of antagonism against God that causes us to walk in disobedience, God conquered their hearts and it manifested through their mouths. How do we know that? Because Jesus in the Gospels said this, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when their language is suddenly filled with God language, it's a sign that their hearts have been filled with a different spirit. Their hearts have been filled with a different substance. There's something else now governing them rather than the rebellious human nature. Now God has given them his own nature. You know, I love how James asked this question in his New Testament book. He says, the tongue is set on fire by hell itself. Who can tame it? And Acts chapter 2 is the answer to James' question. Who can tame the tongue? Who can like quench the fire of the tongue when it's set on fire by hell? The Spirit of God can, because in this moment, their tongues were not set on fire by hell. Their tongues were set on fire by heaven, because now their hearts are governed by a new reality, and it is the government of God. You see, the new covenant that was prophesied about in the Old Testament 
didn't just describe a covenant of forgiveness. It was about a covenant of transformation. The new covenant is not just about God covering your sins. It's about God taking away your sins and transforming your heart so you're no longer internally, you you no longer have an internal propensity toward rebellion against God. Let's read about that covenant promise in Jeremiah chapter 31. Because it's by understanding what God promised that we're able to better interpret what God actually did. So Jeremiah chapter 31, he speaks to the prophet about a new covenant that is coming. Here's what it says in Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. So 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. So in prophesying about the new covenant, he refers to the Sinai covenant, that moment where he gave them the law. We may call it the law of Moses. It was the law of God given through Moses. He said, I'm going to make a new covenant. And as a reference point, think about the Sinai covenant, But it's not going to be like that one. It's going to be a different kind of covenant, though you can use that as a reference point. And he goes on to explain the difference in this new covenant. Verse 33, But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." What he's saying is in the Sinai covenant, I gave you commandments written on stone. They were external, trying to govern you from the outside in. But the problem with the law is that it had no power to deal with sin. It had the power to reveal sin, not to remove sin. But he's saying a new covenant is coming. And in the new covenant, I'm not going to write commandments on stone. I'm going to write commandments on your heart. In the new covenant, I'm not going to govern you from the outside in. I'm going to govern you from the inside out. And he goes on to to describe how in this new covenant, not only will we walk in obedience, but we will know God for ourselves. Now, I believe that it's at Pentecost that God fulfills this promise about a new covenant. Because by the Spirit... The law of God is now written on our hearts so that our mouths begin to speak His words, not our words. Not only do I believe that, though, from a place of personal opinion, Scripture itself bears witness to that. So when we go to Hebrews, um, I believe it's in chapter 10, but let me find it. When we go to the book of Hebrews, it quotes that promise from Jeremiah chapter 31, but it gives us the way in which God fulfills it. It describes it. So this is Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 15. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after He had said before... Now, before we read the next verse, what is 15 saying? Verse 15 is saying, the Holy Spirit is witnessing to us about something. The Holy Spirit is demonstrating the reality of something God already promised. By the Spirit... What God promised is now a reality in our lives. So as we're going to read verse 16, we're now going to find out what the Spirit of God has brought into reality. What the Spirit of God has brought into manifestation. Here's what it says in verse 16. 
quoting Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, into their minds, and in their uh, I'm sorry, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is this, the Holy Spirit is the one that takes that promise and makes it a reality. Jesus by His blood has removed sin and now the Spirit by His work works within us to govern us from the inside out so that our desires can line up with God's desires. You see, the reality and the hope of Pentecost is not that my sins are forgiven, but now I have to live a life managing sinful desires. The hope of Pentecost is that God works in you fully so that your heart comes into joyful surrender to His will. And I think that's why it says in Acts chapter 2, now when the day of Pentecost had fully come. What is it saying? On the first Pentecost, when the law was given, it had partially come. We saw a shadow. We saw a whisper. We saw a, a... forerunner to what God was ultimately going to do. But in Acts 2, when the Spirit comes, it is Pentecost fully coming. It is the law fully coming because now God is working in our hearts and writing His commandments on our minds. You know, one of my favorite scriptures about God working in your internal world is found in Philippians. I believe it's chapter 2. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, "...work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you..." both to will and to do according to his own good pleasure. Paul is saying the journey of discipleship is not about imposing behavior from the outside in. The journey of discipleship is recognizing the work of the Spirit of God inside of you in working it out. Work out. Why? Because God is working in. What is God working in? He's working within you new affections, new desires. He's governing you from the inside out. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to do according to His own good pleasure. When we get to the book of Galatians, we see Paul discussing quite a bit in comparing the law versus the Spirit. And what he's doing there is he's showing us that when we come under the government of the Spirit, we no longer need the law Not because God doesn't care about our behavior anymore, but because when we come under the government of the Spirit, we actually then walk in a lifestyle that the the law expected us to walk in all along, all by God's grace. Let's look at that in Galatians chapter 5. And as I'm turning there, let me give you this idea. Many times we think about the Old Testament and the New Testament in this way. In the Old Testament, you know, you were justified by the law. Now in the New Testament, you're justified by faith. So we graduate from the law to faith. But I would say that I think the book of Romans and the book of Galatians would maybe explain it a little bit differently. That it's not law to faith, it's faith to faith. And here's what I mean by that. In the Old Testament, the children of Israel were justified by the faith of Abraham. And I think that is Paul's message in the book of Romans, that Abraham was never justified by circumcision. He was never justified by his works. He was always justified by faith. And that's why he uses the phrase, we go from faith to faith. There was a faith in the Old Testament that gave Abraham justification. 
And now we go from that faith into the faith of Jesus Christ. And justification now is accessible through faith in Jesus Christ. So if it's not law to faith, but faith to faith, what does the law become? Um, uh, You know, Old Testament Abraham faith, New Testament counterpart, faith in Jesus Christ. Old Testament law, what is the New Testament counterpart? And what I would argue is this. It is not faith that's the New Testament counterpart to Old Testament law. It is the Spirit that is the New Testament counterpart to the Old Testament law. We go from faith to faith and from law to Spirit. It's not that God doesn't govern our behavior anymore. It's that He governs it in a different way. And the way in which He governs our affections is through the work of of the Holy Spirit. So we see that in Galatians chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses, starting in verse 16, because Paul really describes the way in which the flesh comes under the submission of God, and it is through the work of the Spirit. Here's what he writes, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The Spirit is God's new way of governing the human heart. So if we will walk in the Spirit and give the Spirit lordship in our lives, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Consider that. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Why? Because when you're led by the Spirit... The, the law's aim to form character in you is now fulfilled by the Spirit. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I told you beforehand, just, uh, just as I also told you in the past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. Against such, there is no law. I think what it's describing there is the reality that the work of the Spirit is better than the work of the law. Again, the law exposes sin. It does not transform sin. It does not take away sin. It does not remove sin. And what God has now done in the New Covenant is while the law exposed our need, Jesus then takes away our need through His death, burial, and resurrection, and then in the place of our sinful desires, the Spirit comes in and writes something new on your heart. So here's what I want to tell you. Here's what I want to encourage you with. God has the ability not just to forgive you from a sin, of this sin. God has the ability to form new desires within you. God has the ability to transform your heart, to soften what is hardened, to change what needs to be changed, to awaken new desires for His presence. And maybe you've looked at the Christian life and you thought, well, I can never be good enough for that. I can never be good enough for God. God's not asking you to be good enough for Him. He's already taken care of that on the cross, and He wants to give you righteous desires as a gift from the Holy Spirit. We cannot desire God on our own. That's why God promised 
He would get put new desires within us. So as we're closing today, I want to pray that you would experience a personal Pentecost. You would experience the work of the Spirit on a deep heart level, not just something experiential outside, not just speaking in tongues, maybe for the first time or for again. No, but something where God, on a deep fundamental level of your existence, births something new on the inside of you. So, Father, we ask that today on this Pentecost, you would give each of us a fresh, personal Pentecost where you write your story on our hearts, that on our hearts and in our minds, Lord, you would do a deep work that transforms us from the inside out. I thank you that the hope of the gospel, the hope of the new covenant, is not just a forgiveness-based hope, though we're thankful for that. There's also a transformation-based hope that you actually change us into different people with different desires. We say yes to that work, we embrace that work, and we ask that you would do it in us in fresh ways today. In Jesus' name, amen.